Auspicious beginning. Look. That's what you call a satellite. 
They used to bounce messages across the earth. Shows. Everyone in the old world had a show. Do you think there's still somebody out there? Sending shows? Who knows? Those are the planes of silence. Hello? Look, I don't know who you are, but you're not dealing with helpless women now. You people. You young people today! Destroy, destroy! What are you gonna find time to build? You know, uh, you might be surprised to find this out about me, Chris T., someone who's done uh, radio in one form or another, broadcast podcast, since 1986. Dear God. I've even done it professionally. I've even been paid to do it. Hard to believe I know. But uh, you might find this hard to believe, but I... Sometimes like to go around in silence with nothing playing, no music playing, no podcast playing. Sometimes I'd like to just be able to hear my own thoughts. That's always good. It's me, Chris T, on the houndmyc.com, where every Sunday, 3 p.m., you got a new hound house. Oh, it's so much fun. And then crashing the party with Mark and Miriam, the doo-wop chop shop of the air. I am here at my store, That Cave, 106 Partition Street in Saugerties, New York. We'll be open again this weekend, noon to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Drag your mom down the stairs for Mother's Day. Mom! Mom, come here. You gotta see this crap. I say uh, we because uh, my cousin Jen's got the upstairs store, otherwise known as Pop Vintage. And uh, both stores, you got two cousins, two stores, and one stop. It's pretty friggin' handy. Some of these other places. You got to traipse around. You got to go in stores, out of stores, the whole damn thing. So do something nice for your mom. I say, do something nice for your mom. Tonight, I am uh, very happy to welcome to the program uh, a little bit later on, Deke Dickerson. I've known Deke ever since... The Untamed Youth on the great Norton record label. Lo, these many years ago. I knew Deke when he had a full head of hair. Hmm. He knew me when I had a full head of hair. And uh, for many years, Deke has been uh, recording, writing, singing, playing guitar on his own material. Also a published author. With the book, The Strat in the Attic. That's a good one. Always like that one. And um, he wrote a song. We're going to play it in just a little bit called The Year That Wasn't. And uh, he'll tell us. uh, It's actually called The Year That Got Away. I already got something wrong. Mother effer. 
I know how to talk to people. Thanks, Mom. Uh, the Year That Got Away is the name of the song. <laughs> hey, maybe he'll write another one called The Year That Wasn't. Who knows? Anything's possible. But we'll uh, catch up with Deke out in uh, Los Angeles, just above Los Angeles. And uh, Deke is just back from a little bit of a vacation. He should sound very relaxed. Here's hoping he's very relaxed. So uh, I would I was gonna have an upside down update for you, but you know I the other thing you might not guess about me beyond the fact that I like to go around in silence or with silence is if I'm some kind of monk is uh, sometimes I, I, I don't look at the news. I can't I can't take it. I gotten to that point where I like I, my nervous system can't handle it anymore. Because it's all unremittingly bleak. Bleak, I tell you. And, um... My only consolation these days is that I will probably be dead when the shit truly hits the fan. That's what I keep thinking. Keep telling myself. By the time this all goes utterly to hell, I think we're around... I'm going to say, uh, 2050... Uh, maybe 2060. By then, the effects of climate change and the GOP will uh, doom us all. Doom us! We're doomed! Doomed! But let's have a few kicks while we can. Here is your teletype sound effect, which indicates that there's news ahead. How else would you know? Let's see if we can get... Punched in the gut with some of this news and hit over the head. All at the same time. Look at that. The stock market is up despite the uh, crap that's going on in the economy. How does it do it? How does it do it? They say. Who's they? Who in the hell is they? They say that it's because the stock market is really about the future. That's why. So it's a bet on the future. So the future must look bright to these to these uh, morons, these Wall Street, these financial types, you know, those types. Don't get me started. The last few times I had to go into Hoboken, I was so very glad that I no longer live there. So very glad. It's just full of well-scrubbed, very pink people who I guarantee you work in the financial industry trying to figure out how to get their hands on your grandmother's money. That's what they'd love to do. And uh, I've never had uh, much use for those people. I hate to say it. And uh, I'm also glad I moved out of there. Low these 14 years ago because now it's the land of double wide and triple wide strollers. <sighs> I saw one the other day. I swear what I think it was was the mom was pushing the double wide stroller, and behind her was the hired help with a single wide. And uh, it was three kids, all toddlers, I guess you'd call them, because they're in strollers. 
And there you go. I bet you're very good to your mother. You see the beautiful flowers you brought me? Oh, yeah, Mom. <sighs> yeah, uh, Sunday is Mother's Day. My mother has been gone a long time. A long time. And until uh, Livia Soprano showed up on the screen, I didn't really see any moms that sort of were like my mom. But I thought you were dead. I, as in awful. Just awful. And uh, it's a shame that you feel that way about your mom. But what are you going to do? You get the uh, hand. You, you got to play the hand you were dealt. And that's about all you can do. So I, if you have a mom that's at the very least tolerable and you could stand being around her, and she's, she, she's not uh, a harpy, then consider yourself lucky, is all I'm saying. And uh, let's see, let's take a quick look and see what else is in the news while the teletype sound effect is still going. Here's what else is in the news. The GOP has said, screw you to Joe Biden. They, they refuse to work with him. They are going to, Mitch McConnell has said, we are going to thwart that SOB every single chance we get. I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. That's kind of what they said. Not actually, but, you know. It's Chris T. here with Aerial View. That's all the news I can take. So someone please kill the teletype. Thank you. Oh, dear God. Oh, boy, you. Yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, God, what, what did I say now? Stab me, here, here, now, please. All right, maybe it's time to uh, get Deke on the phone. Let's see what's uh, been going on since the last time I spoke with him. And uh, it was, it was, a, it's been a minute, I'll just say. see if this works you know i told you i'm not at home right so if it doesn't work hello hey is that deke dickerson yes it is can you hear me i can hear you but not that great i'll be honest what well here i've got my uh i've got my rig set up here and i thought this would work properly um are we live on the air yeah what does it matter really Come on, who's listening? Well, hold on just one second. I'm going to try one other thing, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do what you got to do. You do you. This will literally take five seconds. You want me to cover for time? How's that? Is that any better? Way better. That's magnitude okay. better. What'd you do? Did you turn uh, on the phantom power? Uh uh, well, yeah, it would take a long time to tell you, but I, I'm recording this uh, on Pro Tools with one mic, and then I set up another mic to go into the phone. But that the one that went into the phone didn't work so well, so I just grabbed my headphones, and that's what we're using now. Okay. Well, that worked. You know, you ever 
see that old concert footage from the 50s and 60s when they did a really good recording and some guy has taped like three microphones together and put them on the mic stand? Because one, yeah. mic, one mic's for the recording and one mic's for the camera yeah. and one mic's for the PA. And they, they couldn't figure out how to split a mic back then, I guess. Yeah. And, and yet some, some of those wacky looking things are some of the best sounding things you've ever heard. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I think you and I are in agreement on a couple of things. I mean, first, let's say who Deke Dickerson is. Deke Dickerson, as I said earlier, author, uh, band leader, uh, singer, songwriter, uh, guitarist. What am I leaving out that you do? Well, as my dad, as my dad used to say about himself, uh, you know, jack of all trades and master of none. Yeah, that sounds about right. And he's just back from El Capitan Canyon, where I did some glamping many years ago. So uh, I know yeah, exactly it's nice where out you there, were. Man. Yeah, it's a nice spot, right? You drag your own trailer there, though. You don't do the uh, give me the A-frame type of thing, right? No, yeah. We last year, you know, we got a vintage camper because obviously I uh, had a lot of free time on my hands, and uh, so we've we've gone a, gone a lot of different places in our camper uh, and really enjoyed it. You know, you and everybody in the United States, I hear the price of that stuff is like through the roof. Any kind of trailer, RVs, uh, you know, home uh, cars you could turn into your home on the road, anything like that is just uh, the price has gone up significantly because people, they want to get away from other people because there's a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Well, for, for me, it was a combination of it was a pandemic. So, hey, let's figure out a way to get away from people. But also... I missed going on the road so much, uh, you know, going in a camper. It's kind of like being on tour. So, <laughs> you know, you got to take what you can get. Yeah. Well, you and so many other working musicians, your livelihood was essentially decimated. What did you pivot to to keep yourself busy and to see to it that you can still earn an income? Well, you know, I'm a musician. I've never earned an income, but uh, uh, you know what I mean. When, when the, feed yourself. Yeah, when the when the when the when the pandemic first happened, uh, I it was actually kind of good timing in a way because I was trying to finish this biography I was writing about this country music hall of fame guy named Merle Travis, and some of your listeners will know who he is. Uh, he's the guy that wrote the famous song "16 Tons" and also "Dark as a Dungeon," and he's a you know very famous country guitar player, etc. So basically, you know, when everything shut down in March of last year, I just spent March and April and part of May finishing that book. Uh, and I was just buried in it. You know, I didn't even look up for two months, basically. And when I came out of that and I turned it in, I realized, oh, man, crap, I got to do something to get some cash flow going here. That's when I started doing these videos and, and doing what a lot of people are doing of just begging your fans for tips, you know? It's it's turned into a really strange thing, but but also a positive thing because found out that people were really willing to help out their their favorite musicians that couldn't couldn't get any work. So, uh you've been recording videos, you've been recording songs. We've got one of your songs uh the year that got away. Um, and we're going to play it in just a little bit. But is that how you feel? Like the year just sort of put an asterisk next to 2020? It was sort of a big blank for you? or or Because when I think about this year, I mean, I actually got a lot done. I did a lot of stuff that, like you said, m might not have had the time 
to get to otherwise. I mean, I opened a store, you know, so it, it was a pretty significant year for me. And uh, do you think you're going to have the same experience when you look back and you're going to find that, yeah, 2020, I actually got things done? Well, the song that you're talking about, The Year That Got Away, it it started coming to me about a month ago, and, and I would get a couple of lines here and there, and then it all kind of came together. Uh, and we just finished this one Sunday, uh, and I posted it Monday, and it's getting this big reaction, which is which is kind of nice. But in the song, I talk about the fact that, you know, some things were bad and some things were good. Uh, you know, got a lot of stuff done. Uh, walked around the neighborhood, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but obviously, if your profession is being a uh, musician, it's one of the occupations that just got completely wiped out. I mean, I had a schedule that was so full for t 2020, and, you know, it started off with a bang. I was did the Outlaw Country Cruise and a festival in Spain, and I was on tour with Reverend Horton Heat, and I must have done 40 or 45 shows by the end of February, it was just like off with a bang. And then all of a sudden, it was just nothing, you know, and, and no money coming in. So if you count on that as your profession, it abs absolutely was the year that got away. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know when there will be like a full bore return to live shows, but you've been doing some backyard shows, people inviting you into their backyards. Is there anything else that's on the agenda where, as you start to ramp up to performing live again? Well, I'm actually booking shows for May, June, July, and August. It's it's not as full a schedule as, uh, as I would normally have, but things are starting to open up. Uh, bars are going to open up here in California June 15th, and, and we can start having live music in bars again. Um, and I, obviously that's going to be different everywhere. It's it's happening in the United States pretty quickly, but like in Europe, I don't think it's going to be happening until next year. And so it's just kind of slowly returning. And, you know, we're kind of hoping that the audiences will come and people will be excited about it. But uh, it's also a strange thing because people have got to feel safe before they go out and do that again. Yeah, and not just because you might swing your headstock uh, of your guitar too wide and hit them like safe from the pandemic <laughs> you mean right yeah i mean you know last year when all this stuff was going on i would see videos of you know like the ramones live at some club in 1981 and there's just hundreds of people jammed together right up at the front of the stage and and i'm looking at it and i'm just thinking ooh, germs yeah yeah, that's a that's a super spreader event before we even knew what that meant. That's what that was. Yeah, uh, Talking with Deke Dickerson, who's got a new number. We're going to play it in just a bit, the year that got away, and uh, ca catching up with Deke to see what the last year has been like for him as he starts to ramp up again towards uh, touring and getting out on the road. I want to circle back to something you said earlier about uh, the triple microphone approach with some of these uh, performances that you see now on YouTube. And, you know, if you, if you, I, I, I'm the kind of person that notices this stuff. Deke is the kind of person that notices this stuff. It might get away from the uh, average viewer, but sometimes you'll see a number of microphones on the same mic stand. They're doing different things. And you said something that I absolutely agree with. I think sometimes people get so fetishistic about, 
uh, sound and especially guitarists about tone. A ad, an ad popped up in my Facebook feed today for these super fancy guitar picks, and right. the ad was about like your tone, and if everything affects your tone, it kind of makes me insane. These are the people that Mark Spencer, another guitarist I admire, refers to as cork sniffers. These are the people who, I don't know what they were asking for these guitar picks, Deke, but I guarantee you they weren't cheap. They were probably made out of unobtainium or something. And then when you talk about Merle Travis, what did Merle Travis use for a plectrum? I can only imagine what it was. I guarantee you it wasn't expensive. Well, you know, I will just backtrack a little bit and say, you know, I'm a Gemini, so I always see things from two different perspectives. And there are certain guys that absolutely, like, everything about their tone is based on some kind of voodoo thing, and they're very particular about it, and... And they've obviously spent a lot of time working on it. And sometimes it pays off for them, you know? But then the thing that's amazing about a guy like Merle Travis, for instance, is that literally he could have his big fancy Gibson Super 400 in his hands, or somebody could just pass him a guitar that was like, you know, lying on the side of the stage and he had never played it before, and it would sound exactly the same because for a guy like Merle Travis, the tone was literally all in his hands. And that's a, that's a thing that a lot of young players don't realize these days is they think like, oh, I, I can buy this pedal and I can get this boutique amp and I can get these pickups on my guitar. And you know, those old school guys, they literally learned how to get their tone out of any guitar that was put in their hands, which is kind of a, a real lost art. And some of these guys were playing with, you know, this is before the age of, you know, you go and get a string set, right? They would put together their own string sets, and the strings sometimes were equivalent to barbed wire. I mean, th- this was not, you know, like I, I would like to sometimes go back in time and see what that was like. I'm sure you've experimented <laughs> with this idea of, because you, you tend to play a heavier gauge than other people, but... Yeah, you know, the the idea of, like, you have to spend thousands of dollars to get something that sounds, like, uh, unique, that sounds like you, when, as you just pointed out, it's really in your hands. It's uh, a good player. They will sound like themselves no matter what they're playing. Well, I have a funny Merle Travis guitar string story if you've got 15 seconds. So you know, in all the years I've been doing this show, no one has prefaced the story with that. So thank you. Okay. All right. So I interviewed his son, Tom Bresh, and Tom Bresh told me that he was with Merle in the 70s. And, you know, some nerdy guy came up to him and said, excuse me, uh, Mr. Travis, what kind of strings do you use? And Merle looked up at him and he said, well, son, I use guitar strings. And the kid, the kid, like, walked off kind of bewildered, you know, and, and Tom said to him, well, no, no, he was asking you, like, what brand you were using or what gauge string you were using. And, and Merle looked at Tom and he said, well, why would anybody care about that? I mean, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Why would, <laughs> why would anyone care about that? Well, you must know. So what brand was he using and what gauge would he play? Was it a heavier gauge than most players today would tolerate? Well, yeah, all those old school guys used real heavy strings, and he was a, a, thumb, a thumb picker and not so much a string bender. So those thumb picker guys, they'd always use uh, heavy strings. But interestingly enough, you know, if we're getting into the guitar weeds here, 
Uh, a lot of people think that back in the old days you could only get flat wound strings, and I have found that that is absolutely not true. Uh, you know, the, the flat wound strings were definitely what the, the jazz guys used and the sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like the sort of older East Coast guys playing arch tops, they would play flat tops. But, you know, talking to a lot of these country guys, they had never seen flat wounds. You know, they would just go into their local music store and they just have some kind of heavy round wound string and that was just common, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and we're like you said, we're so fetishistic about it these days that we, we get down to the nth degree. But back in the old days, man, it was literally like just one step above cutting some wires off the fence and f adapting them to fit your guitar, you know. Yeah, and it, it it extends to recording too because people uh, don't realize that the records that uh, will last forever, the ones that we'll still be listening to e eons from now, are very often recorded in real time around maybe one or two microphones, and they had about half an hour to do the song. So, and and it was the immediacy that made it so compelling, especially if we're talking about rock and roll. I mean that. Other yeah. types of things, you might want a Chet Atkins behind a mixing console. You might want somebody to do something a little more in-depth, but those songs were even often recorded in real time. I mean, overdubbing didn't come along until Les Paul figured out how to do overdubbing. It wasn't a thing. And there are people now who they feel like that's when it all ended. That was the beginning of the end, was overdubbing. I, I, don't, I don't go that far. I'm, I'm not going to go that far, obviously, but... The the central point is people go all up the ass of they need to do this and they need to do that. And really what they should do is first write a good song. How about starting there? Well, and, and learn how to play, too. I mean, I, I do a lot of I, I do a lot of recordings, uh, you know, bringing bands into the studio. And and, you know, I, I'm kind of known as a vintage guy. And so I always ask these bands, well, like, OK, do you want to record Pro Tools multi-track on the computer, or do you want to try doing it live to mono or live to two-track reel-to-reel tape? And and they always say, oh, we want to do it live. Uh, well, that's that's the way we want to do it. And then as soon as you start doing it, you realize, like, yeah, they, they can't do it. I mean, they, they have to be able to overdub their guitar solo 20 times or fix this wrong note or whatever. And, and that, again, is kind of a lost art, uh, that whole thing of, like, oh, the, you know, they just pressed record. We have to play it perfect. Uh, that's just been lost because everybody has that attitude of uh, we can just go back and fix it later. Well, uh, let's drill down a little bit on how you recorded the year that got away because then we'll play it. People will get to hear it and then we can talk about it a bit. So what was the approach to this? So just to backtrack a little bit, uh, when I mentioned a while back that I've been doing these videos last year, a lot of my friends, other musicians were doing these, uh, you know, Facebook live events or, you know, streaming type concerts. And and I kind of wanted to do something different. So I started using this goofy little phone app called Acapella, where you could play all the instruments yourself and they would show up in different windows like, oh, there's nine Deke Dickerson's playing all the instruments. And I'd started having a lot of fun with it, and it was kind of fun to do a whole lot of different genres, you know, things that people wouldn't really expect from me. And so I was doing doo-wop and, you know, country and just whatever would kind of come to my mind, I would, I would do it. And when I got the idea for this song, The Year That Got Away, 
I was writing it in my head, and by the time that I actually committed it down to paper, I said, oh, man, this is a, it's a god dang rock anthem. I've never written a rock anthem before, like, but this is what it is. So I realized I can't record this song as, you know, a 1960s country song or a 1950s doo-wop It has to be recorded like a proper rock anthem. And so I called up this friend of mine, a guy named Jim Laspesa, who plays uh, percussion in Brian Wilson's band. He's a great drummer. He played with Dave Davies and the Muffs and a bunch of other bands like that. And I asked him if he would come over and do the drums because when it when it comes time for drums, I can play drums, but it's if it's a really important thing, I got to bring a real drummer in. So he came over to the house. We recorded, you know, guitar, vocal, and and drums all live in the room. He left, and then I just started put put putting on all these other parts. And I gotta say, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and and I've written a ton of original songs. And this one was weird because it literally was like, it just kind of came together and it, you didn't have to fight it or or adapt it or anything. And when it was done, uh, both Jim and I and, and my girlfriend, Sally, we, we were all like, holy, holy crap, man. This thing sounds like a, a hit. And it, it did, it came out fully formed. And, uh, it, you know, I, I put it out on Facebook Monday, and I said, here it is. This is a song I wrote. It's kind of about the pandemic. It's called The Year That Got Away. And literally seven minutes after I posted it, uh, our friend Jeremy Tepper from Sirius XM, he, uh, he sent me an email and he said, that sounds like a hit record to me. You better send it to me so we can start playing it on Outlaw Country on Sirius XM. And, and I did, and, and Mojo Nixon, put it on the next day, which is pretty crazy that, you know, you mix it on Sunday and by Tuesday morning, it's, it's being played on nationwide radio. I mean, that's how uh, it used to be. Sam Phillips would bring Dewey Phillips, the acetate, and it would be a hit within minutes. I mean, that's how it used to be, man. That's, that's how it should be. That's how know, it should but, uh, be. You're right. It should be like you record the song and then it's on the air within a half an hour. Very often, like, you know, Tommy James was the victim of this. It wasn't even the one he wanted to put out. You know, it wasn't even like Hanky Panky was not the record that Tommy James wanted to actually make of Hanky Panky. It was a demo. And before you knew it, it was played on the radio and it was a hit. And he said, screw it. You know, why Why am I going to redo this? And And there are so many stories like this, just like. As someone who's interviewed a lot of songwriters, you hear about this mystical sort of process of the song just arrived. It came to me. I didn't have to work at it like I have to sometimes. And Yeah, that's the way this one was, for sure. I think about Fred Neal going into a bathroom and writing Everybody's Talking because they wanted a song out of him. And he's like, I'll give you a song. And, you know, that song uh, is still around. I think it may have won an Oscar. I, I, I'm not going to go and Google it, but, you know, it was uh, used in, in uh, Midnight Cowboy. But it, it came to him within minutes. It, it arrived, like, of a piece. And so this is one of those songs, The Year That Got Away. And anything you want to say about uh, the particular... Uh, sounds you wanted to get for this song or guitars you needed to use or amps you needed to pull out of storage and use because you wanted it to sound a particular way? Well, you know, to, to get a, a wee bit metaphysical, 
it was strange because like you were just talking about, it's almost like this song was already fully formed and it already existed. I just had to get it there, if that makes any sense. Uh, when when we were laying down, you know, when we laid down the basic tracks and then when I was overdubbing all these parts, it was kind of like, yeah, that needs to be this way and this needs to be that way. And then I just did it, you know, within a matter of five minutes, lay down a bass part, then grab another guitar and like, okay, this acoustic guitar goes in the pan left and we'll do another acoustic guitar and pan it right. And, and you know, it kind of just, it just was already there and I just needed to actually play the parts that already were there like in the universe. I'm starting to sound like Sky Saxon here, man. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I get it, though. I get it. It was like you were the what do they call those doulas? You know, the women who uh, help deliver the baby. You, you, you're just sort of there and making exactly. sure the baby gets born. So exactly. uh, let's play the year that got away from Deke Dickerson. And uh, then we'll return here in uh, just about five minutes and, and wrap up with Deke.
I think D called out the distortion pedal for that one. Wait, is that power amp distortion, or uh, was that a uh, box? What did you use there? Well, yeah, that was a, uh, a an Ibanez Tube Screamer pedal that I found at a garage sale and uh, and pl- plugged into a little quilter amplifier, which is a, a new amplifier that gave me one, and they're actually really great. You can, you can get some really nasty tones out of them, and they'll be sort of like just barely on in the studio. They're not deafening you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, those are nice because they're lightweight. I mean, touring musicians, uh, guitarists really like those quilter amps. You, you can put them in your, yeah, you can put them in your suitcase and put them in a carry-on on a plane. Um, so those Tube Screamers, is it the ones that you could you slap on eBay and make a few bills on if you had to? Like if everything went south, you had to start selling stuff, Deke? <laughs> Uh, well, well, I, I sold, sold a bunch, a bunch of, stuff of stuff this last, last year, year man. Uh, uh, but I, I'm I, looking I at your mouse traps right now. I put your mouse traps up in my store. That's right. You bought those from me, yeah. I, I, yeah. I saw those Western Exterminating mouse traps. I always loved their logo. The, the one that uh, Van Halen used for one of their tours. Um, yeah. But it's it's the guy uh, with the big mallet behind his back of getting ready to womp a rat. And um, so, yeah, but the Tube Screamer, I grew up with a, a Boss Orange Distortion. That was the pedal. Oh, yeah. The one to have. And then a rat, a Proco rat. was. Uh, yeah. And I still have my Proco rat that I bought in 1982, and it still works. So Nice. Well, I still have my, uh, my Boss uh, Delay pedal that I used in my first rockabilly band back in the 80s. Like a DD3 or some damn thing? I mean, uh <laughs> It was maroon. I, I don't know what the model number is. It was just, you know, you plugged it in, and it kind of sounded like Brian Setzer. There you go. Which, which, by, by, which, by the way, man, you're the reason I got to jam with Brian Setzer on Sirius XM. Yeah, I, I want to tell that story because uh, I, it's one of my proudest moments at Sirius XM because you were there. <laughs> you were there, uh, and we had arranged for you and your uh, uh, 
trio. It was a trio at the time, right? You had the upright bass, yeah, and the drummer to play in what we called the fishbowl. And it, what uh, what were you plugging at the time? Was it a new record? I'm trying to remember, or a tour, or, or what it was. I don't even I don't even think we were plugging anything. Just uh, you know, we were just there to do a, a live taping, and and when we got there. Uh, Tepper said, hey, Brian Setzer's in the next studio. He's in here promoting his Christmas tour or something like that. And then you you were the, you know, the guy, the voice on the air. And, and you, can, you can take over the story if you want. Well, it was a case of he came by the show that I did at the time on the trucking channel called Freewheeling to plug his Christmas shows, his annual Christmas show. And I, and he he walked in with his own uh, tape echo, right, and his own amp and his guitar. So he was all ready to go off the shelf. And I said to him, hey, you got to come by the studio later. Have you ever met Deke Dickerson? I'm still amazed that he was not familiar with your name. I'm, I, I don't know how that happens, but okay. You know, and I first met Brian Setzer back when the Stray Cats were doing their thing. He's from Massapequa. I was taking a leak alongside of him at a club called Spit one day, <laughs> and I said hello to I said hello to him because you know I was from Lindenhurst, he was from Massapequa. But anyway, um, I didn't think he was going to. But then while you guys are are playing, he shows up at the studio door, and then you did three songs together. Well, and if I can interrupt you, the only the only reason why we did three songs together is because. Brian Setzer came in the room with us, and we're all like, "Hey, uh, nice to meet you, Brian!" And we're just kind of like shaking hands and and just kind of you know sh- shooting the bull. And then you you just say, "Hey, Brian, why don't you grab your guitar and that little amp and come jam with these guys?" And we are literally just paralyzed with fear, like, "Oh no, he didn't just ask that!" And there's that uh, you know little awkward two seconds of delay where you can tell Brian's got this look in his eyes like how do I get out of this one you know yeah these guys are gonna like, suck right like Brian <laughs> Brian Setzer you could see the wheels in his brain going these guys are gonna be terrible and I'm gonna have to play with them this is gonna suck and then of course it wasn't terrible because if there's anybody that could keep up with Brian Setzer it's Deke Dickerson well, I told him, I said, hey, man, let's just do Mystery Train, and I think we did The Races On. Let's just let's keep it out of prog rock territory, because he can obviously play uh, like 10 million more notes per minute than I can. But we had, we had a fun jam on, uh, on a few songs, and, and it was great. Yeah, did anyone get any video of that? I know there's audio. The audio was rolling. The, you know, there's yeah, a recording of it. I don't think so. We we got a bunch of uh, photos and we got the audio of it, and uh, you know that way all my friends at home actually believe it happened. But uh, I don't think there's any video of it. Yeah, and it was really nice what you said too, because I mean he, you know, uh, I didn't appreciate them as much as I probably should have back in the day. Like I was firmly in my punk rock hardcore phase, and I didn't. I, I'm not sure that uh, guys who were doing rockabilly appealed to me all that much. But, but I realized the error of my ways. I got to see them a few years ago play on the east side of Manhattan, you know, on the East River, and it was fairly amazing. I mean, they could still bring the goods, and I'm glad that those guys can tolerate each other and play together. And this is the Stray Cats you're talking about. The Stray Cats, yeah. And, you yeah. know, I, I mean, I've even gotten to see Brian do his solo Christmas thing, and, you know, he's, he's just an amazing player there's you can't take it away from the guy he's he's just no absolutely not 
So uh, Deke Dickerson is here with us for a few more minutes, and um, there's a couple other things I, I wanted to get to as well before we we run out of road entirely. Um, you uh, you're going to be heading back out onto the road. Is there going to be another record in your future? Are you working on something with the Echophonics or solo or with any other outfit that you care to put together? And what's the ETA for the Merle Travis book too? Okay, so that's basically three questions I got to unpack here. The Answer band, whichever the, you the want band, first. The the the, uh, the band that I'm working with these days is called Deke and the Whippersnappers, and uh, it's me and a couple of young guys, as you might guess from the name. And we're we're having a blast because man, the great thing about playing rockabilly with young guys is they have the energy, and so that's kind of my my main live band these days is is with them and. If you want to go on YouTube, we just shot a pretty fun video for a song of ours called Wild Wild Thing. Uh, we went up kind of in the, the California desert and, and it's, you know, we had a drone camera and my 1960 Cadillac and it, it turned out really nice. Uh, so that's sort of my current product. But then as far as my latest release, I'm actually going to put together a vinyl album and probably a CD and a, a download kind of thing of of most of these uh, songs that I've recorded for the videos over this last year. And, and that'll be fun because it's just so many different styles. It'll be totally unlike every, any album that I've done, but I, I've had so many people requesting it that I think I can sell a few. And, and now I have the perfect title track, The Year That Got Away. It's like, this is what I did the last year, you know, while I wasn't on the road. Oh, okay. that's better than the name I had. I was going to call it The Many Moods of Deke Dickerson, but that's probably... <laughs> That's probably a better. Well, I was, was going to call it the the quarantine sessions, but I think that's already been used maybe about six thousand times already by other musicians. And the year that got away—that's just the perfect title. Uh, and then the last question: the Merle Travis book. You know, I turned it in last year, but the way that things have been with uh, the publishing world and because of COVID and everything else. The release is scheduled for spring 2022, uh, and it's coming out on a publishing company called BMG Publishing. They're part of, you know, BMG is a big record conglomerate. They own RCA and a bunch of these other labels, uh, but they have a publishing wing, and so it'll it'll be like a real book you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious the impetus for that project did you just look around and say to yourself there like no one has done an in-depth on Merle Travis so if I want to see one I have to do it myself was that the genesis pretty much pretty much and and you know it's it's funny because at this stage in the game there's been a book written on just about everybody and and certainly almost all of the country music Hall of Fame artists have got several books about them and so i thought it was weird number one that merle didn't have a biography out and two it was weird because merle was known for being a writer he was a very talented writer and a really smart and funny guy so it was kind of weird that he never did an autobiography um and i approached his two daughters that live here in southern california uh, merlene and cindy and i told them i said look there needs to be a book. We've got to get a book happening. And luckily they agreed with me. And when they let me in to see, you know, all the stuff that they had saved after he passed away, it turns out that there was quite a bit of raw, unedited 
autobiographical stuff that he had tried to start writing, but he had never finished. So basically the book is a conglomeration of a lot of this stuff that he wrote, fleshed out by me, uh, put in order, you know, put in context, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was, it was, I, I was going to uh, when that Buck Owens book came out a few years ago, uh, it was a very lucky case of Buck sitting down and, and uh, you know, with a cassette recorder and recording his life, essentially, like what he wanted to be in this book. W was there anything similar with Merle? Did he ever sit down in front of a microphone and tell his story? Not, not, not like you're thinking, but... Uh, you know, there was a lot of interviews done with him. Uh, there was a really great one in 1961 when he was still in pretty good shape and he went into a lot of depth about, you know, his early days. There was several interviews that were done in the 70s and early 80s uh, where I would, you know, grab a quote here and there from. Um, and there was... At, at the end of the day, there was so much stuff that it was sort of an embarrassment of riches. So luckily, I was able to just kind of pick and choose the best stuff to use. Uh, but no, he never actually sat down and, you know, did a tape recording of this is my life story or anything like that. Well, I, 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 I'm glad, again, that uh, he's getting the in-depth that he's long deserved. And if you had to say to people today why Merle Travis matters how would you sum it up why should they go out and get the book well you know number one it's a very interesting story in I know that people love these stories that are kind of both triumph and tragedy and definitely his story is like that he was one of these guys that he was basically a super genius you know he, he excelled at everything that he tried doing whether it was guitar playing or songwriting or uh, he taught himself how to repair watches, and he taught himself how to do taxidermy and all, all kinds of stuff like this. He was an expert cartoonist, but at the same time, he was an alcoholic from about the time that he was 12 or 13 years old, uh, you know, because he, he, he grew up in Kentucky, you know, and he was just surrounded by, by all these guys that were drinking, and then he became friends with Johnny Cash in the late 50s, and they became pill buddies, and and, you know, Merle almost died in the early 60s because he was taking so many two-and-alls that he ruined his stomach lining and he had this massive stomach, stomach hemorrhage and he just about died. Uh, and just there's just story after story like that where he would have these incredible highs followed by these incredible lows. And by the time you get to the end of the book, when he dies at the age of 65, you're kind of like, I can't believe that guy actually made it to 65. I mean, it's kind of incredible Incredible, he lived that long. Uh, but I think people who don't know anything about country music or anything about guitar will actually enjoy reading the book because it's just a pretty amazing life story of all these highs and lows. But then if you're a guitar nerd or even a songwriting nerd or whatever, there's there's lots and lots of detail about the Muhlenberg, Kentucky thumb-picking guitar style and the origin of that style and the history of how Merle got into all that. And Well, you're one of the only people I know who could not only, when the book tour happens, talk about the book, but demonstrate the styles. So that's going to be interesting. I, uh, I look forward to talking to you again uh, when the book does make it out finally, but we're out of road for tonight, Deacon. And again, uh, I mean, thanks for taking the time out 
to sit down and chat with me for a bit and uh, good luck with the song. I think it's a great song. I, uh, Thanks for playing the new song. I really appreciate it. I like hearing you do some power pop. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let's talk again um, when the book comes out. All right. Sounds great, man. I really appreciate you reaching out. There goes uh, Deke Dickerson just back from uh, a little bit of camping at El Capitan Canyon. That'll do it for Aerial View. We're, we're out of road. And uh, thanks again to uh, Deke. You can find Deke. Uh, oh, just type in Deke Dickerson on your browser and you'll find Deke. And I'll be back again uh, next Friday with another Aerial View. Don't forget Sunday you got Hound Howl. And then uh, that's at 3 p.m., 5 p.m., Mark and Miriam with Crash in the Party, thehoundnyc.com. Came to you live from Socrates, New York, where that cave is open again this weekend, noon to 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. When I get that feeling, my mama won't let me come home. Walks like she's walking on soft boiled eggs. I got a boogie boogie feeling. Had it all night long. When I get that feeling, my mama won't let me come home. There's two kind of people I just can't stand a lying woman and a sneaking man. I got a boogie boogie feeling. Had it all night long. When I get that feeling, my mama won't let me come home. Now what did the rat say to the mouse? I want to see you down at my house I got a boogie boogie feeling Had it all night long When I get that feeling My mama won't let me come home I got a boogie boogie feeling Had it all night long When I get that feeling My mama can't keep me home